Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. Whores, prostitutes, streetwalkers, and sex workers. Their loved ones know them as mother, daughter, sister, wife, and friend. These same people often end up as the victims of theft, assault, rape, and murder. Life on the streets for these people is extremely dangerous and difficult. Many are dealing with poverty, addiction, and mental illness. Escaping the lifestyle is a lifelong struggle for many. If this isn't bad enough, they are easy targets for a multitude of crimes. Because they are often breaking the law themselves in some way, no matter how small, these people are often reluctant to go to law enforcement for help. When they do, they are not necessarily treated with the level of respect and compassion they deserve. This is a story about a man who is arrogantly perverted and devious beyond belief. His name is Robert Lee Yates Jr. He has managed to fly under the radar, living a seemingly innocuous life and convincing others that he is above reproach. He knows how vulnerable these women are and he is more than happy to take advantage of them. Yates would frequent the coach house coffee shop in Spokane, which was a hangout for the local sex workers. He would sit there and talk with them, or he would just listen. And sometimes he would give them rides when they needed one. He did this to gain their trust, learn about his victims, and create the illusion that he was a safe date. These women had dated him without issue or had coffee with him, no problems. They thought of him as safe and harmless. Sometimes he even partied and did drugs with these women, his drug of choice being crack cocaine. Operating off of East Sprague Avenue in Spokane, commonly referred to as Skid Row by the locals, Yates would approach a prostitute, negotiate a sex act, have them enter his vehicle, kill them by shooting them in the head, then cover their heads with plastic bags to prevent blood from saturating his vehicle and to make sure they died. Kind of a belt and suspenders strategy. He would typically undress their bodies looking for money. He would often have sex with the body, then transport the body to a dump site, usually in a secluded area. It was not public knowledge that Yates' victims were repeatedly sexually assaulted. They were also unaware that these sexual violations were committed after the victims were murdered. The Spokane serial killer was a necrophiliac, one who has sex with the dead. In fact, the father of Sonny Oster, one of Yates' victims, said in his impact statement from the book, The Body Count, after calling him, quote, useless garbage, 
Her father asked the courtroom, Does anyone know what he does to dead girls after they're dead? Does anyone know that he has sex with them after they're dead, like he did with my sonny? Unquote. In his appeal, Yates claimed that he could not be held responsible for the murders he committed in Spokane because he suffers from severe paraphilic and necrophilic disorders, meaning he feels compelled to have sex with dead bodies and this caused him to kill against his will. Just something to keep in mind as this story unfolds. Robert Lee Yates Jr. was a family man, husband, father of five, army veteran, and serial killer. In the year 2000, in Spokane, Washington, Yates was convicted of 13 counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted first-degree murder. Yates was born May 27, 1952. Yates grew up in Oak Harbor, a city located on the beautiful Whidbey Island in Washington State. Whidbey Island is about 50 miles north of Seattle in the Puget Sound, and it's about a two-hour drive from the Seattle International Airport. You need to drive over the unbelievable Deception Pass to get there by car. The bridge was completed in 1935 and connects Whidbey Island to the rest of the world. Prior to the bridge, you could only reach it by boat or plane. Deception Pass is a landmark of the Puget Sound and people love to photograph it. Spectacular views of the Pacific Ocean and Olympic Mountains are what make Whidbey Island so gorgeous. After the bridge was built, making the island easily accessible, the Navy built the Naval Air Force Station on Whidbey Island. There's a big boating and yachting community here too. It's not uncommon to see yachts made of all teak. They're so beautiful. The houses and bungalows lining the beach are amazing but sometimes the wind coming off the ocean can be so strong it seriously feels like the house will be picked up and tossed around, just like in The Wizard of Oz. There's no way to know if Yates' background or family history had anything to do with his future behavior, but it's certainly worth mentioning. Yates's grandmother murdered her husband, Yates's grandfather, by chopping him up with a double-sided axe. She did this at home while Yates's father, Robert Sr., who was just a child at the time, was in the house and heard the whole attack from his bedroom. When he got out of bed to see what was going on, he found his father lying on the kitchen floor, dying. He went looking for his mother and found her in another room, just sitting there, calmly, in a chair. His grandmother, who had given birth to 11 children and was basically a single mom since her husband had to travel so much for work, may have just snapped. She spent the next seven years in a mental health institution trying to recover. Robert Lee Yates Jr. was known as Bobby to friends and family. I'm going to refer to him as Yates because Bobby sounds too innocent to me. Yates was raised by his parents, who were devoted Seventh-day Adventists and heavily involved in their church. Yates had a very close relationship with his father, and by all accounts, they got on very well. 
He was considered to be a quiet, well-behaved boy. Growing up on Whidbey Island would have been a great place to raise a child, surrounded by the ocean, rivers, forests, creeks. There would have been endless outdoor activities for kids to enjoy. Years later, Yates's defense attorney in Spokane claimed that when Yates was about six years old, he was being repeatedly molested by an 11-year-old boy in the neighborhood. His parents didn't know this at the time. His father stated that at around age 16, Yates started to become moody and violent, although I couldn't find any details regarding this behavior or a reason for it. Yates attended Oak Harbor High School, graduating in 1970. In the 1970s, the Vietnam War was still going on. During this time period, guys had long hair, and sex, drugs, and rock and roll were all the rage. Despite this, Yates did not drink, smoke, or do drugs, and he kept his hair short. He went on to attend Skagit Valley Community College where he obtained an Associate of Arts degree and met his first wife, Shirley Nylander. They married in 1972 and moved to Walla Walla. Walla Walla is in eastern Washington state, and it's about 150 miles south of Spokane, which is also in eastern Washington. It would take you about three hours to make the drive. The Snoqualmie Pass divides eastern and western Washington. You have to cross over the pass to get back and forth by car. In the winter, this can be very problematic depending on the weather conditions. In the winter, you might need snow chains or the pass may be closed altogether. Eastern Washington has a dry, desert-like climate, which is very different than Western Washington. They don't get nearly the rainfall that Western Washington gets, so it's not green and lush like Western Washington. And because Eastern Washington is so much further from the ocean, it gets much hotter. Eastern Washington is known for its agriculture, which includes cattle ranching, dairy farms, wheat, apples, pears, cherries, and so much more. They are also known for their rodeos, with Ellensburg Rodeo being one of the most popular. Yates's first wife, Shirley Nylander, filed for divorce in May 1974 after just 18 months of marriage. There's no documentation explaining why she filed for divorce, but he didn't waste any time grieving that marriage because Two months later, in July 1974, Yates marries Linda Brewer. Linda was a young woman he met while they both attended Walla Walla University. Apparently, he and Linda were seeing each other prior to his divorce from Shirley. This may have contributed to the breakup of that marriage. Yates and Linda actually had to annul their marriage because his divorce from Shirley wasn't final yet. Despite this setback, they welcomed their firstborn, a daughter, to the family. In the summer of 1975, Yates got a job working for Washington State Department of Corrections as a prison guard in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Linda's dad worked there for 18 years. Yates quit working there after only six months, but he's back serving his sentence at the very same prison. That same summer, on July 13th, at the age of 23, Yates murdered 22-year-old Susan Savage 
and 21-year-old Patrick Oliver by Mill Creek near Walla Walla. Their bodies were discovered the next day on July 14th. Susan and Patrick were childhood friends, and they were very close. Patrick was just returning from studying in France, and Susan had graduated from Washington State University just two months earlier. They made plans to picnic at nearby Mill Creek and spend the day catching up. Mill Creek has hiking trails, parks, creeks, and all kinds of wildlife. Yates happened to be in the same area target shooting. According to his friends and family, this was typical for Yates. When Susan and Patrick crossed paths with Yates, he shot Patrick Oliver three times in the head and then turned on Susan, shooting her twice, once in her left shoulder and once right behind her left ear. Then he buried their bodies under some brush and an old tire where they were found the next day. Susan Savage was naked from the waist down and her green halter top was pushed up, exposing her breasts. There was no sign of sexual assault at the autopsy. Patrick Oliver was fully clothed. Unfortunately, it took 25 years to solve their murders. Yates actually confessed to their murders after he was arrested for the murders in Spokane. That was when law enforcement realized that Susan Savage and Patrick Oliver are Yates' first murder victims. Not long after these murders, Yates abruptly and without explanation quit his job at the Walla Walla State Prison. In 1976, he sold the handgun he used to kill Susan and Patrick to someone in Oak Harbor. Fortunately, law enforcement was able to track down the handgun years later, even though it had had four owners since Yates. Yates only confessed to these two Walla Walla murders in order to avoid the death penalty for the murders he committed in Spokane. Linda Brewer and Robert Yates Jr. remarried in a civil ceremony in July of 1976. About a month after the wedding, Linda discovered a hole in their apartment wall that Yates had drilled. This hole allowed him to spy on his neighbors while they were having sex. Linda was so upset and disgusted by this that she left Yates. She was gone for about a month before she came back. Throughout their marriage, this would be their pattern. Linda left a number of times, but always came back. A few months later in October, Yates' mother died after a long bout with cancer. A close childhood friend of Yates stated that he didn't seem that upset about his mother's death. Not sure if that means anything. In 1980, Yates' career in the Army is really beginning to take off. He is immersed in his aviation training, he becomes a warrant officer, and he is stationed in Germany for four years. In 1981, his third daughter is born. In 1984, Yates is back in the U.S. and stationed in Fort Rucker, Alabama. He is in Alabama until 1988 when he is stationed in Germany once again. Starting in 1988, bodies began to appear. But Yates wasn't on law enforcement radar yet. What they were beginning to notice were similarities in the victims being found that seemed to indicate there was a serial killer at work in the area. Let's jump ahead 10 years to 1998. In 1998, 
Yates attempted to murder Christine L. Smith, but she miraculously managed to escape. She was not his first victim, but she was his only victim to survive. It's her story that may help us understand what happened to all the other women he killed. It seems that the scenario described by Christine is the one he repeats again and again. It appears that Yates negotiates for oral sex, but when he can't get an erection, he gets mad, shoots the prostitute in the head while she's trying to do her job, and then covers her head with plastic grocery bags to keep the bloody mess at a minimum and to ensure death via suffocation if needed. Now that she is dead and he has her head covered, he can get back to having sex. Now he can get the erection he couldn't get earlier via oral sex. On August 1st, 1998, Yates attempted to murder Christine L. Smith. She was born August 25th, 1967, and was 30 years old when Yates assaulted her. Christine was a young prostitute who accepted a date with Yates and got into his van. It was about 1 a.m. when she was picked up on East Sprague. She described the vehicle she got into as a late 70s model black van with orange coloring on the side panel. She said in the rear of the van there was a wood-framed bed with a mattress on it and the handle was missing from the sliding door. She described the man who picked her up as a white male, about 50 years old, 5'10", 175 pounds, medium build, sandy blonde hair, average length, no facial hair, and a slightly pockmarked face. Christine also noticed that her date did not smell like alcohol or appear to have been drinking. She instructed her date to drive to a nearby parking lot where they could carry out their business. She even asked him if he was the psycho killer. He said he wasn't because he was a helicopter pilot for the National Guard and had five kids, so he wouldn't do something like that. Christine said she quoted her standard price of $40 for oral sex, and he handed her the money. They climbed into the rear of the van, and she got on the makeshift bed. Her date pulled his shorts down and she began to perform oral sex on him for at least five minutes, but he wasn't able to get an erection. Suddenly, Christine felt a blinding pain that almost knocked her out. She fell backwards, trying hard to stay conscious and keep her wits about her. The man was yelling at her to give him his money back, and she made her way to the front seat of the van trying to get the money out of her pocket. During this time, she could feel blood dripping from her head, and she managed to jump into the front seat and out the passenger door. She ran to a nearby rehab center, and they helped get her to the hospital. She was treated for a deep cut above and behind her left jaw, which required stitches. Her injury wasn't identified as a gunshot at the time. In a follow-up interview with police, Christine wasn't able to identify the man who attacked her. After Yates was arrested in 2000, his photo appeared in a local newspaper. Christine saw his picture and contacted investigators on the Homicide Task Force, and she told them that she thought Yates was the guy who attacked her. She also told them that she had been in a recent car accident, and as a result, had x-rays taken of her head. 
Doctors found out that she had metal fragments embedded in her skull, and these were likely from an old gunshot wound. Christine didn't even know she had been shot. At the time of the assault by Yates and since, she had always thought she had just been hit really, really hard in the side of the head. When law enforcement located several vehicles that Yates owned or had previously owned, including a 1979 Ford van, it very closely matched the vehicle description provided by Christine. As they searched the vehicle for evidence, they found a number of stains that tested positive for human blood. They also found a 25 caliber casing, which was the same brand and caliber of ammunition which was used in several other murders Yates was suspected of. In Yates's home, detectives found a Mickey Mouse jacket that belonged to Christine Smith. They also came into possession of a video from a neighborhood activist. The tape is from the same night Christine was assaulted. It appears to show Yates's van cruising the same neighborhood where Christine and other prostitutes worked. In fact, you can clearly see the prostitutes on this video. Detectives felt very strongly that the assault of Christine Smith on August 1st, 1998 was an attempted first-degree murder by Yates. Now, let's go back to 1988, a decade earlier, and continue the story. On December 28, 1988, the skeletal remains of Stacy E. Hahn were found in Skagit County. She had been shot once in the head. Skagit County is in western Washington, just north of Oak Harbor, where Yates grew up. She was last seen about five months earlier, around July 7th. Stacy was a young woman from Seattle. She was only 23 years old and working as a prostitute. When she first went missing, law enforcement thought she might be a victim of Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. After Yates was in custody, many years later, he confessed to her murder and provided details on her injuries and the location where her body was found, making it clear he was telling the truth. This confession was part of his plea bargain to avoid the death penalty. In 1989, Within a year of killing Stacy Hahn, Yates and his wife Linda gave birth to their only son. By this time, Yates had been in the Army for about 12 years. He was well respected and highly decorated. In 1990, three bodies are found along the Spokane River. All three victims were prostitutes, and all three were shot to death with a 22 caliber handgun. The victims were Yolanda Sapp, Nikki Lowe, and Kathy Bribois. Yolanda Sapp was a 26-year-old African-American female. Her body was found on February 22, 1990. She was found nude, halfway down a steep river bank along the Spokane River, with a blanket wrapped around her feet. She had three small 22 caliber gunshot wounds to the chest. Nikki Lowe was a 34-year-old white female. Her body was found on March 25, 1990. She had been shot with a 22 caliber handgun. Kathy Bribois was a 38-year-old white female. Her body was found on May 15, 1990. Based on her autopsy results,
Kathy was shot with a 22 caliber handgun and she had been beaten badly with a blunt object. Yates was considered a very strong suspect for these murders for many years after he was arrested, but there was no evidence which would support law enforcement's theory. As it turns out, spoiler alert, a transgender woman was convicted of killing these three women. These three women were all shot within a four-month period by Douglas Perry. Perry discarded these women like trash, leaving their naked bodies strewn on or near the banks of the Spokane River, naked, with their breasts and genitals exposed. In 2000, 10 years after the murders, Douglas Perry went to Bangkok, Thailand, where he underwent gender reassignment surgery. Afterwards, he changed his name from Douglas to Donna. Prosecutors believe he went to this great extreme in order to avoid suspicion. In 2012, 12 years after the reassignment surgery, Perry was convicted of a felony weapons possession charge. As a result, Perry's DNA was collected and subsequently matched to all three Spokane victims, Yolanda Sapp, Nikki Lowe, and Kathy Brebois. In 1991, just three years after killing Stacy Hahn back in Skagit County, and two years after his son is born, Yates is stationed in Fort Drum, New York, where he flew helicopters and taught others to fly until 1995. On March 12, 1992, the body of a white female is found. She is 19-year-old Sherry Palmer, and she was found in a heavily wooded area along Mount Spokane Park Drive and Bill Gulch Road. Sherry was working as a prostitute in Spokane at the time of her death. Law enforcement found articles of clothing tangled in the area of the victim's arms and head and plastic shopping bags covering her head. Just like previous victims, shoes and other articles of clothing were found near her body. There was no sign of a struggle and no significant blood pooling in the area of the body, which indicated to law enforcement that Sherry Palmer had been killed at a different location and brought to this site and dumped. As of March 2021, there are some who still believe Yates is her murderer, but he has never been charged. In fact, no one has been charged with this murder, and it's now a cold case. In 1994, while still stationed in New York, Yates took a short vacation and went back to Washington State. While he was there, Yates bought a white Corvette from Sarah Walsh in Walla Walla. It was either a 1975 or a 1977 model, depending on the source. He then drives the Corvette back to New York, just in time for the Army to ship him out to Haiti. Throughout his career in the Army, Yates was stationed all around the world. There's no proof that he killed outside the United States, but it wouldn't be a big surprise if he did. On Friday, August 25, 1995, the body of 60-year-old Patricia L. Barnes was found in Kitsap County in western Washington. Her nude body was partially covered with foliage, and she was shot twice with a 22 caliber handgun. It appeared that she was killed at one location and then transported and dumped at the location where she was found. Law enforcement also found 
two plastic bags at the site where they believe she was killed. Patricia Barnes was homeless, but did not have any links to prostitution or drugs. The Kitsap law enforcement contacted the Spokane law enforcement to compare notes. At the time, they felt sure that she was a victim of the serial killer, but there was no evidence to support Yates' involvement and he was never charged with this murder. In fact, this is another one where no one has been charged. To this day, it is still considered an unsolved case in Kitsap County. It was in 1995 that Yates was back from Haiti and stationed at Fort Rucker, Alabama again. He is about 18 years into his Army career, and he and Linda are still married. They now have five children, four daughters and a son. In two more years, he will be able to retire with full military benefits, which would be substantial and provide him with a very comfortable retirement. In 1996, despite the fact that Yates had a very distinguished career in the Army and received numerous awards and medals, in April, he put in a request for early retirement. He ended up leaving two years shy of the 20 he needed for full retirement. He would only receive a small fraction of his benefits and retirement pay. This may have been because the Army was no longer planning on using the helicopters he was trained on, or maybe he thought it was a good time to go since the Army was in the process of downsizing their forces. Whatever his reason, he didn't provide an explanation to anyone. While Yates was stationed at Fort Rucker, a 17-year-old transvestite prostitute was found murdered. The young man's name was Terayon Corbett. Corbett's body was found dumped on the side of the road, and he had been shot once in the chest and twice in the face with a 45 caliber Glock handgun. As detectives started their investigation, they would naturally look into a possible connection to the nearby military base. In hindsight, they believe Yates panicked and wanted to get out of town quickly in order to avoid attracting their attention, and that is why he retired early. Yates was actually not on law enforcement radar for this murder until much later. He was never charged with this murder, but some detectives still believe he most likely killed Terayon Corbett. I couldn't find any explanation as to why Yates or anyone else was never charged with this murder. This is now a cold case. Yates moves to Spokane. In April of 1996, after leaving the Army in Fort Rucker, Alabama, Yates moved his family to Spokane, Washington. Yates and Linda were not a happily married couple. According to the book Body Count, Linda said, quote, I had hoped that coming back to Washington would help the marriage, but it didn't. The romance was gone, but I felt guilty about splitting up the family. The kids loved their dad, and I just kind of suffered through it. I didn't love him the way a wife should. He killed that." Unquote. At the time of this move, he had no job and remained unemployed for several months. Money was definitely an issue for Yates and his family since his monthly retirement check was only a fraction of the monthly benefit he would have received if he had stayed for full retirement. But they still managed to rent a nice, well-maintained home in a cul-de-sac. 
Yates still had three cars and was always working on them and washing them. So much so that the neighbors joked about it. Yates tried to get a job as a civilian pilot, but there weren't any available. He ended up getting a job about six months later at Pantrol, a small company that made circuit boards. But business was slowing down at Pantrol, and Yates only stayed there for about a year, maybe less. Next, he managed to get a job at Kaiser Aluminum's processing plant. His job at Kaiser was one typically held by much younger guys. He was working in dangerously hot temperatures around extremely hot liquids. It was pretty grueling work. At both companies, Pantrol and Kaiser, he's remembered as being just a regular Joe and a nice guy. Just two months after Yates moved to Spokane, the body of a white female was found. It was Friday, June 14, 1996, when the body of 39-year-old Shannon R. Zielinski was found near the intersection of Mount Spokane Park Drive and Holcomb Road in Spokane. She was partly clothed and wearing a short gray dress. A towel had been left lying across her abdomen in addition to a pair of pantyhose, a pair of white socks, and one high black boot which was discovered close to her body. But no identification or purse was found. Her state of decomposition was too advanced to allow toxicology tests, but they were able to get fingerprints, which is how she was identified. Detectives also found a shell casing at the scene, and like other previous victims, she had been shot to death. There was very little blood pooling where her body was found, and no sign of a struggle. This indicated to law enforcement that she had been killed at a different location and transported to the site where her body was dumped. As detectives investigated Shannon Zielinski's background, they learned that she did work as a prostitute and was known to use illegal drugs. The last time anyone can remember seeing Shannon was on May 27, 1996, at approximately 1 p.m. in the vicinity of East Sprague and Helena Streets in Spokane. Apparently, she was seen drinking alcohol with a group of guys and a police officer stopped to speak with her, but she was not arrested. According to witnesses, Shannon left a nearby residence that same evening as she headed out to work. She was working as a prostitute and wearing the same dress and high black boots she was wearing when her body was found two weeks later. In April of 1997, Yates joined the Army National Guard. He stayed in the National Guard for the next three years. He trained at Fort Lewis Army Base once a month, which is in western Washington, and just a few miles outside of Tacoma. He was very well qualified, but due to pending medical evaluations, he was not allowed to fly. He ended up being grounded from the spring of 1997 to the spring of 1998. It was during this period of time that Yates' killing began to escalate. Just a little over a year after Shannon Zielinski's body was found, on Tuesday, August 26, 1997, the bodies of Heather Hernandez and Jennifer Joseph were found. Spokane detectives were definitely putting in some overtime on this particular day. Heather Hernandez was found by a man who was out collecting aluminum cans. Her body was discovered in an overgrown lot 
behind a business in the 800 block of East Springfield. Heather was 20 years old, thought to be a drifter from Phoenix, Arizona, and known to work as a prostitute in the Spokane area. She was only wearing a shirt and bra. No other personal items were found with her body. What they did find was a trail of blood over a gallon that led from the parking lot to the field where her body was found, clearly indicating that she had been dragged across the pavement and ground. Her body was decomposed to the point where it was not possible to visually determine sex or ethnicity, but they were able to identify Heather using fingerprints. She had been shot in the head multiple times with a 25 caliber handgun. On September 5, 1997, not long after the body of Heather Hernandez was found, detectives received a call from a local prostitute. She stated that she had seen Heather get into a van and that she had seen this van on more than one occasion. This young woman thought the van was suspicious enough to call the police. She described a 1970s full-sized Chevy van, brown with a beige center on the side panel with flames painted on it. It also had an eagle painted on it where the spare tire would have been stored on the rear door. The guy driving the van was a white male, middle-aged, and had brown hair. The first time she saw this van, the windows were not tinted, but the next time she saw it, they were. She just thought this was suspicious under the circumstances. In fact, she said the guy in the van actually tried to pick her up, but she wasn't interested. From the book, Body Count, she said the van gave her, quote, unquote, bad vibes. She also stated that she talked to another sex worker about the van, but that person thought the guy was harmless. The young woman who called in didn't agree and was convinced that there was something not right about the guy in the van. Apparently, it was a feeling that Heather Hernandez did not get because she got in the van just a few days prior to her body being found. One of the detectives on the case stated years later, that Shannon R. Zielinski, who we heard about just a little earlier, may have been murdered in the back of Yates's van. He actually investigated her murder, but at the time, he had no way of knowing about Yates and the fact that he owned a van of the same description. Her body was found near a bus stop and she had been shot in the head. The summer of 1996, the same time period in which Shannon's body was found, Yates had been out all night with no explanation as to his whereabouts. He left the house that night to take his teenage daughter to work. She worked the graveyard shift. After he dropped her off, he went off to have fun. He didn't come home until 6.30 a.m. the next morning and woke his wife Linda up by banging on the front door. For some reason, he didn't have his keys to the house and was locked out. When Linda opened the door, he quickly went inside and began gathering up all kinds of cleaning supplies. According to Linda, the inside of the van was covered in blood. The cushions on a fold-down bed were soaked, and the whole thing was just a big mess. Yates claimed that he hit a dog, stopped and put it in the back of the van to take the dog and its owner to the vet. On the way to the vet, it bled all over the inside of the van. Linda was tired and upset 
but didn't really have a reason to not believe the story. I said this in a previous episode. I'm going to say it again. Don't get in the van. And that was part one. I hope you'll come back and join me for part two, the exciting conclusion. Thanks for joining me once again on Crime Happens. 